James chapter 5, 13 through 20 is what we're covering this morning, and it's the end of the book of James. And as we, when we kind of started off the book of James, we said that it's a little bit difficult to kind of pin down because it's almost written in a way that, um, you know, is somebody who kind of seems a little bit spastic. They like write a couple sentences about one topic and then they switch and then they're, you know, it's kind of like they're all over the place. It seems like they have like these different personalities. But really, if you look at the whole of what James is wanting to communicate, his, his writing style and the purpose of his book is to address the various, uh, you know, sectors of life, the various uh, things that go on in your life and to address them individually in order to say that you must be consistent in each one of those things to have a wholehearted love for God. His concern is with those people, his readers, and with us being completely, 100%, wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus Christ. Earlier in the book, uh, he describes someone who is not wholehearted as someone who's divided or unstable in all their ways. He describes that person as being double-souled or, or having two natures. And here he kind of ends the, the, his letter writing on one of the last areas, but one of the most important areas, the topic of prayer. And, and he writes regarding prayer, and then he ends it with an exhortation we'll see in verses 19 and 20 that kind of is a summary of what he's said thus far. And so he starts off in verse 13 addressing the topic of prayer. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Now, of course, we know that there are people among them suffering because he just got done addressing that in in chapter 1 and in verse or in chapter 5 verse 7 uh, through 12 as well it's what we looked at last week the idea of suffering and going through trials and difficulties in life and so he asked the questions anyone among you suffering let him pray is anyone cheerful let him sing praise And, and so these are kind of two situations that James wants to address and he gives the same direction to to both people if you are suffering, here's what you ought to do. If you're cheerful and you're not in you know, the process of suffering, going through trials, here's also what you ought to do. And he describes these two things, and one thing is to pray, and the other thing is to be cheerful. And we'll kind of get to what those mean on their own. But essentially what he's saying is uh, your response to both of those situations should be going to the Lord. Your, your response in trial should be, Praying, focusing, and taking your trials to the Lord. Your response when you're cheerful should be praise, responding to the Lord in thanksgiving, in, uh, in, in your cheerfulness, in the, the good circumstances of life. And so James gives us these two, two situations, and his exhortation is the same. Take it to the Lord. Now, the first situation he deals with has to do with trials and suffering. And when we talk about suffering, it's kind of what he's been mentioning throughout the book in chapter 1 and chapter 5 about experiencing difficulty, having troubles in life, having, uh, you know, suffering pain. And at this time, James's readers were suffering at the hands of uh, rich, wealthy landowners who were oppressing Christians, and they were placing them under both uh, an economic oppression and also through uh, taking them into court and 
you know, using the court system and the, and the processes there in order to further impoverish these people. And so James is writing to people who, are have, who have serious suffering going on. They're dealing with serious problems. And now he goes on and he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And in verses 10 and 11, he's already kind of spoken to us about suffering. And he, he references Job there. In verses 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job suffered, and he already used Job as an example for us, but in that suffering, Job's suffering, he, he you know, got it at pretty much every angle. He suffered economic disaster. He suffered illness. He had these great boils upon his body. He was, he was uh, sick and had all sorts of diseases, and he experienced the death of family members, and not just one. It's like all of his kids get killed, and, and everything that he owns ends up being destroyed. But, and so we have this example of Job. We can identify, and these people can identify with Job, and we can certainly identify with trials and difficulties in life. And so he says, how, how should we respond to, being, to dealing with suffering? How should we respond to trials and tribulations? Well, he says we're to pray. He says we are to respond in prayer. We're to take it to the Lord. Now, why in the world do we want to pray when we're suffering? And this is important that we remember this. this, is, this is, it's key to our understanding of all of Scripture. Why do we want to pray, especially in suffering? Well, when we pray, it demonstrates our dependence upon God. It demonstrates uh, that we acknowledge His sovereignty over all of creation, over all things, over everything that is on earth and in heaven, everything that has been made, he is sovereign over all. And when we pray, we recognize in words and in our heart that he is in control and that we are not. When we pray, we express our need for him. You ever notice when you're going through trials and difficulties, the things that we try to do is we try to fix it. If there's a problem, we try to fix it. If there's a difficulty that we're in, if we're, if we're in a tough situation, we first come and say, okay, what can I do to fix this? Our first thought is not often, let's, let's take this to prayer and figure out what in the world is going on right here. Our first thought is not to acknowledge that God is sovereign over this situation and how is it being used and what is the purpose for which it is being used. You know, uh, as an example, uh, um, a couple years ago, I was taking a road trip up to Seattle and with a bunch of friends, and we were up there for a conference, and, and we're, we're coming back, and after a long weekend, we were super tired. It was like, it's like a 14-hour drive or something crazy like that, you know, and we decided to do it nonstop on the way back um, in order to get back and see our families. And on the way back, going like halfway up this one little, kind of, I don't know if you would call it a mountain range, it's more mountainous. We're halfway there, uh, up through the mountain range, and all of a sudden, my car starts overheating. And I'm like, oh, great. So I throw on the heater, you know, and, and try to make it a little bit more, and then it just it's not helping. And all of a sudden, all the smoke's coming out of my, my engine. I'm like, oh, great, I have to pull over. So I pull over. And 
take a little bit of time trying to figure out. And the, the rest of the guys are like, we have the other car. We're going to go on. And one guy stayed with me. And he's, and he's just like, I was, so, I was a little bit frustrated at the time. But I was thankful that he stayed because like, I know that he's such a grounding force. And, and whenever I'm in kind of situations... Or, and whenever we're in situations together with this one guy, he's always like, let's pray right now and figure out what's the Lord's doing. I'm like, yeah, because I'm not happy right now. This is, this is terrible. I have to drive, you know, eight more hours. I'm exhausted. Got up at 4 a.m. to start driving. And, and in the process, this, this guy, we, we ended up in, in a bunch of more difficulties. We got down the hill and visited a couple different uh, auto shops, and they didn't have a radiator. So I had to call this mobile radiator guy to come and drive out and bring a radiator to us and so as he's trying to install this radiator he's like formerly in the marines but then has like kind of some also mental problems but he's really smart and we're paying him cash to do this on the side of the road and pick up it's just this crazy mess and my friends like there the whole time like you know he's trying to encourage me and remember like all right what is the lord doing here and and it's just like 109 degrees. We're exhausted. It's just not fun. But in the process, we got to share the gospel with him. And we're like, maybe the whole point of this, maybe the whole point of why the Lord caused us to break down is so we could, you know, be stuck here on the side of the road for six more hours while we wait for the guy to drive two hours from another city to bring our radiator. We could sit here. We could share the gospel with the CHP people who come and keep coming by and asking us what's going on. And then the guy who comes and installs it, and it's just this big mess. But in the process, my friend was such a grounding force to remind me of the sovereignty of the Lord in that situation. There's a reason and a purpose besides the fact that my radiator cracked and I needed a new one. It wasn't just about difficulty, but what is the Lord going to do in this situation and how am I going to yield to it? And so it's often in the process that we ought to refocus there. And it was only in that time where I stopped being frustrated and acknowledging that this is the sovereign will of the Lord for me to be here in this moment on the side of the road that I was able to rest in him and be like, okay, Lord, what do you want to do here? Because we're here. We're not going anywhere. What do you want to do? And in those difficulties, it's easy in those moments to see, okay, I got no other options. Now I got to pray. But we ought to make prayer our first stop when we experience difficulties and trials. We express our need for God when we pray. John Stott, the theologian, said, Prayer is the very way God himself has chosen for us to express our conscious need of him. I love that. Prayer is the way that God has chosen. uh, He chose it himself for us to express our conscious need of him. Jim Cimbala, pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, says, God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who admit how humbly and honestly uh, admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness is, in fact, making room for his power. And he's absolutely right. When we are weak, he is strong. When we confess our weakness, he is strong. When we come to him in humility, it leaves room for him to work. Lastly, the purpose and the reason why we pray is because it's given and ordained for the purpose of glorifying God. That's what we said in the book of James. The whole purpose of it is that we might be wholehearted, that we might know him, that we might enjoy him forever, like the Westminster Catechism tells us the very first uh, 
First one. Now, why should we pray? Or, or what should we pray, excuse me? The prayer that James encourages here when he says that, that when you're in trials and tribulations that we ought to pray, the prayer that James encourages here is for spiritual strength to endure trials. Oftentimes, we want to get out of them, right? That's the whole thing I was just explaining. When you're in trials, when you're in difficulties, your first stop is, all right, like, let's fix this. But earlier in James 1, 4, James tells us, let steadfastness or patience have its uh, full effect or its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, in the end, you're going to be mature, you're going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, only if you let patience have its, its full work, only if you let have steadfastness have its full effect. You have to go hands off in your situation. You have to let the Lord do his thing and work. The point is to endure well in trials. So when we pray, we're not praying our way out of trials, but we're praying our way into suffering well through trials for God's glory. One pastor friend of mine said that we should aim not for advantages or relief in prayer, because that's often what we do. Aim not for advantages or relief in prayer, but God's glory. And so we ought to be focused in our prayer in suffering and trials on God's glory in how we would suffer well for him. Not get out of what the situation that we're in or what we're going through. The second situation that James mentions in the verse here is the situation of cheerfulness or happiness. He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So this is a reminder to refocus on the Lord. And, and as we said, it's easy to call out on the Lord in times of, of suffering. When you're in tri trials and tribulations, when things are difficult and you're like, I don't got no other options. So this is, you know, you end up there by default. You end up responding to God in prayer by default. But it's hard to rejoice when you're happy because everything's good. You think you got it together. It's difficult to, to respond in, in, in cheerfulness and in, in praise. You're like, I'm good. I don't need to remember God because everything's going good in my life. But, Paul, uh, but James says, excuse me, that we ought to sing praise in times of cheerfulness. Responding to the Lord in times of cheer is even more important than in times of suffering because it's when we don't feel like we need him, when things are going good. We want to respond to him in praise. Uh, and when he says there, sing praise, those who are cheerful should sing praise, he's actually saying uh, sing songs of praise, or the word that he actually uses is psalms. And so we see in Scripture that David, Asaph, the other writers of the psalms, also did this in their times of cheerfulness and in their times of despair. They sang songs of praise. Furthermore, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, he tells them, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I, uh, but I will pray with my mind also. So he has the idea of praying. And then he says, I will also, or I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So he's got both there happening. He's got that idea of praying and the idea of singing praise, both in the mind and in spirit. It's something that's indwelling. Uh, in Ephesians 5.18, one of my favorite passages, he tells us, Paul tells the Ephesian church, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
That's what they were, were told to do, to sing, to rejoice, to sing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so the church, the people of God, should always have a song, a, a, something that is within their heart that they are rejoicing in. And so giving praise here, just like our petitions in times of trial and in times of suffering, those things should be rooted, or they, they, should, they should be natural in the life of the believer. As you're walking with Jesus, you should have the love of God flowing out of your heart. When you're wholehearted, you will want to sing these uh, psalms, these, these songs, these hymns. We, we see that when some of the disciples uh, are in jail, or, or yeah, the disciples are in jail, I think it's, excuse me if I'm mixing my people up. Disciples are in jail. They're singing there with all the other prisoners, and they're just like leading like this chant. They're like, yeah, let's rejoice in the Lord while we're in jail. That's awesome. It's awesome to see them exercising this. Now, there's one great, really great, and, and actually quite humbling example that we find of this in Scripture. Let me break it down for you real quick. There was a situation where David the king was running from Saul. Saul was feeling the current king, or David wasn't the king yet. He was feeling threatened, or I guess he was the king. <laughs> I'm all over the place. David is running. He, he's running. He's anointed to be king here, and, and, and he is running away under the fear of his life. And he runs into the temple, and he finds there Abimelech, who is in charge of the temple there, and he's looking for food, and he asks for the sword of Goliath because he needs something to protect himself there. And so the, in, in doing so, he kind of lies to uh, Abimelech. He's like, oh yeah, I need all this stuff. You should just give it to me. And he's like, all right, sounds good. We trust you. you know, so he gives David this, this sword and, and, and David running for his life, he ends up with the sword of Goliath running to, uh, to Gath, where Goliath is from, to the Philistines to kind of hide among them. But then he gets recognized. And so the Philistines, they capture him. And, and in Psalm 56, we, we get a glimpse of what David's despair is there. You know, he's like saying, like, rescue me, O Lord. You know, I trust you. Uh, up until that point, David was trusting in his own plan. He's been like, I got this together. I'm going to go get that sword. I'm going to lie to the priest. I'm going to take this. I'm going to go do my own thing and hide. But then when he's captured, when he's in this moment of despair, he's, he, he, you see his thoughts in Psalm 56, where he's crying out before the Lord. And there, as he's, he's captured, then they're bringing him before the king, and David pretends, it tells us, to, uh, to be insane. He's, he's letting, you know, he becomes foaming at the mouth and letting spit kind of come down his beard, and he's acting like a crazy person there. And so the king, who, the king of the Philistines, who thinks he has this great prize, all of a sudden realizes, like, this guy is nothing. He's just, he's nuts. He's, it's not like anybody I could parade in front of my kingdom and be like, look who I conquered. They'll laugh at me because he's just like, you know, he's somebody who's mental, and so he lets David go, and then you see David's then response in Psalm 34, where he's cheerful and praising God for his faithfulness to deliver him from that trial. And, and in that moment, you know, that's the, the famous psalm where he says, let the praise of the Lord be continually upon my lips. He's doing what James has told us to do. In that time of cheerfulness, in that time of deliverance, he's asking, you know, he's, he's declaring that he wants the praise of God to be always upon his lips. 
And so that is the exhortation that James gives to us. And now he tells us a little bit more about prayer in verse 14. He says, is anyone among you sick? We, we know about that. Like there's tons of people among us who are always sick. And here he's talking about one specific person in this exact moment, but is also applicable to all. He says, if anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, when you read this verse, you, it's just natural for all of us to go to the part that we think is the weirdest and be like, what's the deal? Like, immediately you're like, okay, what part of this doesn't make sense to me? And that's the part that's important to me. I want to figure out how this kind of like magic works by obeying this verse. So let's break it down. When he talks about being sick, he's talking about someone who's weak or ill or sick. And in this case, he's referring to someone specific. He says, if this, this person who is so sick among you, they're so sick that they should call for the elders of the church to come to them because we can't bring them into the church assembly here. So if you're sick, you should have someone come to you. And when he says, let's call for the elders of the church, what he means there and throughout the New Testament, the word elder is used interchangeably for pastor, overseer. It's, those are all used interchangeably. It's the, the highest office in the church, those who God has appointed in Ephesians 4 to lead the church. And we are to call for those elders of the church, and they were the spiritual leaders of the church, who you see the qualifications in First uh, Timothy and Titus, and the qualifications are having to do with someone who is mature in faith, who has walked with the Lord for some time, who has been tested, who has demonstrated through their actions that they love Jesus and love the church. You see some of those qualifications laid out. And so these people who are sick are to call those who are mature in faith to come and to exercise this prayer over them. He says, let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the believer who is sick, if you're sick, you're not commanded to pray over yourself, but rather you're to call the elders of the church to pray over you. You can pray for yourself, of course, and other people, he kind of gets to that in verse 16, having other people pray for you and, and praying, you know, just making prayer a priority. But here, in this moment, for this uh, prayer for healing, he's saying that you should call for the elders of the church to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, what's the point of anointing? Because, you know, when you kind of like look at the anointing, with oil. What is, what, is that, what is that there for? You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see the anointing of kings. And there's definitely, uh, you know, cases and, and we see in Psalms where, where oil is used up for medicinal purposes. It's used for healing. But that's not James's intention here. The elders are to anoint the sick person they're to use this oil to anoint the sick person in order to demonstrate, to physically and vividly show that this person is being set apart for God. This is a symbolic act. It's a symbolic act of faith. He's, this person is being set aside for God's special attention in prayer. It's an exercising of faith. And what we're talking about here is praying in faith. And so when we anoint with oil in the name of the Lord, it's an exercising, a symbolic act of faith. 
Now, the value of the anointing, the point of the anointing, has nothing to do with the physical connection. It has nothing to do with that actually happening and the the sickness, but rather it's all bound up in the symbolism. And so as elders would pray for someone, they would anoint them upon, usually upon the forehead with oil and, and place that there and pray for them and gather around the sick person and ask, he tells us, in the name of the Lord. Now that is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing here. It's the, the point is that the anointing is done in the name of the Lord. It is the Lord, not necessarily the prayer or the oil, who will raise up this person who is sick. If you, you see that in, in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It has nothing to do with this, the actual action of the oil. It has nothing to do with the person who is praying. It has nothing to do with, uh, with the fervency of the prayer and like, oh, I really meant it this time. You know, you can muster up all the charisma and passion, but it has to do with doing it in the name of the Lord. It is the Lord and not anything else that will raise this person up. He says uh, in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there's this prayer of faith that's exercised. The word that James uses here for prayer refers to a wish or a petition where we're praying for someone to be healed. And, And James promises that this person, when prayed for in faith, in the name of the Lord, when they are prayed for in this manner, the Lord will raise him up. Now, James is, again, referencing, we've seen this throughout all the book of James, he's referencing Jesus' words here. He's writing to, to write, uh, or he's writing to mimic some of the things that we find in uh, the Gospels. One of the things here in, in uh, Mark 131, Jesus came, speaking of Peter's mother-in-law, it says, he came in and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Likewise, uh, Peter himself lifts up a lame beggar in Acts 3. Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So there it is, not in his own name. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And so what what James is saying here is when we do this, as the elders of the church gather around a sick person and they pray over someone, they're exercising the same type of faith and they're exercising the same type of healing that was existing here in Acts 3, in Mark 1. And he says there, if this person has committed sins, those will be forgiven. In, in Old Testament times and in ancient times overall, sin and sickness were closely associated together. It was thought that if you were sick, it was usually as the result of sin. We see that in the book of Job that we've already kind of talked about. As Job is suffering there, his friends, his wife are like, you must have done something. There's all these chapters about them complaining about like, Job, you must have done this. You should just curse God and die. But we know through, by reading the book of Job that that, didn't, that wasn't the case. The reason that Job was suffering was because of the affliction that Satan brought upon him. It had nothing to do with Job's sin. In fact, the Lord said that Job was upright. 
And so he had no sin, you know, by which to suffer this for. Later, we also see in John 9, Jesus is there with the disciples and they ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that's the the mindset. And Jesus answers, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, the purpose of these things is so that Jesus might be glorified. God might be glorified in these trials. But the New Testament does, in fact, affirm that some illnesses are the product of sin. We know that today. If, if you are found, you know, in certain situations in life, if you are a drug user and you're, you, you are using, you know, needles that other people are using to abuse drugs, you're going to get a disease. If you are having uh, sex with other people out in the community and having all these multiple partners outside of the, you know, and, you, and you're not in your marriage and you're committing fornication or adultery, you're going to end up with an STD as the result. It's a natural thing that we experience. We know people who have gone through these difficulties. And so it's not to say that none of these things might come about from or no sicknesses or illnesses might not come about from sin, but rather, if sin is involved here, we have to deal with the root of it before we deal with that, that, that uh, fruit of the sin. We have to deal with the problem of the heart before we get to dealing with the, the sickness itself. Remember, James is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with us being wholehearted in pursuit of Christ. And so it's only the prayer of faith that will bring healing. It's not the prayer of faith that is offered by the person who is sick, but by the elders. Now, let me, get, let me address kind of a side thing here, because this is something that is real and exists in our culture. There are, in fact, other sorts of, of uh, you know, you kind of see on TV, too, a lot of times, healing ministries and things that exist in that sort of nature where, where you will go to someone and try to, you know, they'll want you to have faith and exercise and, and really kind of play on this passage and say, if you come and you, you exercise and your faith is great enough, then you will be healed. And if you're not healed, it's because your faith wasn't good enough. You, you did not have enough faith. You weren't, you weren't good enough. You, 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 you're not spiritual enough. You're not mature enough in the Lord to be healed. And a lot of times, when healing doesn't happen there, those people just all of a sudden they're crushed. They feel like nothing, like, like I completely give up because I wasn't spiritual enough or I didn't have enough faith. And that desire to have that, that you know, to want to have enough faith or to be told that you don't have enough faith, that you weren't healed because of that, that's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Because Jesus has given us everything that we need through his death and resurrection. Everyone who is found placing their active trust in Christ has enough faith. Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. And he's not talking about how much faith that you need to have in terms of, you know, you just need to have the very smallest amount. It doesn't matter how much you have, whether you have a ton of faith or whether you have the smallest amount. Any active Trust in Christ is what he's looking for. But now when we talk about those sorts of healers and ministries, 
they're off. And let me explain to you why. The reason is because when we talk about the prayer of faith, when you talk about having the elders gathering for faith, it has nothing to do with the elders either. When you're exercising this prayer of faith, it has nothing to do with the person praying. It has nothing to do with the anointing. It has nothing to do with the spiritual nature of the elders being in in a position of leadership within the church. The faith is not faith in faith itself. You're not saying, I have so much faith that I, you know, that I have faith. That is, that's not what it is. The faith that we should have is only as good as the object in which we place it. And so if you're placing your faith in something, you're saying that you trust that. When, you're place, when someone tells you you don't have enough faith to be healed, it, they're basically saying that you don't have enough faith in yourself. But that's not what the Bible says. It says when we ask, when we pray in faith, We should have faith, but what faith is he talking about? That we should have faith in God. We should have faith in God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When Jesus said, you ought to have faith as a mustard seed, he's not saying you should have faith in yourself, but the littlest amount of faith in God. Not in what you can do, not in what the elders of the church can do, not in what leadership can do, or anyone who claims to have miraculous abilities can do, but faith in God. Faith is only as good as the object in which you place your trust. If you place your trust in something that's going to fail you, your faith will be no good. But if you place your faith in the eternal God who is sovereign over all, the smallest amount of faith is enough. Now, when we pray in faith, it recognizes... God's sovereign nature over all things. And a prayer for healing, as we said, must be accompanied by the recognition that God's will is supreme in the matter. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. When you pray in Jesus' name, and it's kind of like, it's like the default ending when you're learning to pray. Your parents say like, oh yeah, you should say this. Or you hear people pray, it's always kind of like the default, in Jesus' name, amen. It's like, that's what you're supposed to say before you say Amen. You know, instead of saying, like, sincerely, you say, in Jesus' name. When we say in Jesus' name, it's absolutely vital, it's absolutely important. But the point of it, in saying that it's in Jesus' name, is that we're saying, Jesus, your will above our will. And so, when you're saying, Lord, I really just want, like, a new sweet ride... You know, or I really want, you know, that new 82-inch flat screen that just came out in Jesus' name. It's like you almost just nullified your, your asking there because it's like, does Jesus really want you to have the 82-inch flat screen? Like, that's the biggest priority in your life right now. You want that, but is that what Jesus wants? So when we ask in Jesus' name, we're asking for his will to supersede our own. We're asking for him to have his way above our own way. Jesus says in John 15, or excuse me, 1 John 5, 1 John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whenever we ask, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of him. He says, anything that you ask, I'm going to give you. Anything. 
but if you ask according to my will, if you ask for what I want for you, I'm definitely going to give it to you. And if you know that you're asking according to his will, you can have the confidence that you're going to receive it. And so when we ask, when we pray in faith, we're asking for the Lord to have his will and his way in our life. So how does this apply now to our text? He says that we ought to have this prayer of faith here, who will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. So let me talk to you quickly about the timing and methods here. Because the two texts that we looked at, right, we saw that it happened, bam, right away. They prayed, or, you know, they see these guys and they lift them up and boom, they're healed. Well, that's not always how it works. Paul, the apostle, who said he's the chief of sinners, but pretty much when everyone reads the New Testament, he wrote most of it, you think like, okay, you're probably like the most holy out of all of us, besides Jesus. You're probably the most holy. When Paul prayed for his own sickness, for his own health problem, he, he prayed three times and he didn't receive what he wanted. In 2 Corinthians 9, 12, it describes it this way. He says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. You know, it's like his health problem is that he describes. A messenger of Satan to harass me. This health problem he calls a messenger of Satan. To keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, so Paul comes three times just asking him, Lord, just can we please get rid of this? This thing is driving me crazy. And the Lord responds, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul's point here is that he asked, he should have received, out of all of us, let's be real, like Paul should have got what he wanted. You know, he was pretty faithful. But he asked three times and the Lord said, no, you're not getting that because my strength is made perfect. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And you will know me and experience me in a greater way than you would without this. The, the, these problems cause us to push into Christ. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4.20 that he left one of his members of his missionary team, Trophimus, who was ill. He left him at Miletus. He's like, dude, you're not getting better. These healings that Paul's praying for, and they don't always happen right away. He's like, couldn't wait any longer. We had to jet. We prayed for you. So the timetable for these healings, that doesn't always come instantly. It doesn't always come instantaneously. It doesn't always come immediately. Healing may come immediately. It may come at a later date. It may come in heaven. And it may come through different means. It may come through natural means, things like the natural process of the body. Just because you're praying for healing and your body is naturally healing itself, that doesn't mean that God is not involved in that. That doesn't mean that he's not responding to your prayer. It means that he's designed your body in a way that is so brilliant that it repairs itself. That he designed you to be fixed by, you know, through the natural processes of the body. Another way that, that it might come in a natural mean is through medicine. We find in Scripture different things. You know, Paul tells Timothy, like, you know, you should take a little bit of wine for your stomach, for those problems you've been having. You should have that to settle that. 
There's different instances where we see that medicine is used and it can be stewarded over wisely to help people heal. So those are some natural means. But then there's also supernatural means and things we see in like the miraculous that we described in Acts 3. Or in Mark 1, where Jesus just walks in, sees Peter's mother-in-law, and is like, come on, woman, let's get up. Boom. Just grabs her, pulls her up. So the means doesn't always have to come by what you want it to come by, or how you want it to come, or what you want it to be, or, or what you expect it to be. It could be that the Lord heals you in a natural way. It could be that he heals you in a supernatural way. It could mean that he heals you immediately or later on or ultimately just doesn't heal you at all here and gives you a new body in heaven. It could be any of those things. But again, it's in the name of the Lord. Not what you want, but rather what he wants. Most of the time we're, we're caught up in our own kind of timetable. Uh, one, one person who quoted another person Really bad citation in the book. <laughs> but they had a brilliant kind of saying regarding this. He says, Someone has summarized how God answers different prayers. If the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. When the re request, the timing, and you are right, God says go. I thought that was, you know, a little bit cheesy, but simple. <laughs> <laughs> the request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. If you are wrong, God says grow. When the request timing and you are right, God says go. And that's a great way to describe it. When, when we pray, we don't want to just ask for what we want, but we want to align our hearts with what God is doing. We want to ask for the will of the Lord and discover what he is doing. And so... We want to pray in a way that acknowledges that God's will is best. And it's exactly the, the qualification that Jesus gave to his own promise in John 14, 14. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, that in my name is a qualifier of asking for his will. So we got to pray in faith. we got to ask in expectancy that the Lord is going to work. And now he goes on in verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's see if I can wrap this up. So James is thinking now of these sins that caused, you know, sickness here. And now he doesn't just speak to the elders, but he's speaking to the whole church community at large. You should all be praying, he's saying. He says, Confess your sins to one another. You should be praying with one another. Other people in the church, anybody who is sick or who has illness, or in, in general, you should be confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another that you may be healed. And, and so there's a, specifically, James is remarking, a general command for the church to be praying together, both in individual aspects where you are meeting with another brother or sister in Christ or where there's a church prayer meeting where we're kind of gathering together to seek the Lord and pray there. Anytime we come together and we're going to sit down and pray together or anytime you have opportunity to pray, you should take it. It says something that the church was birthed in a prayer meeting, but not many church or not many prayer meetings exist in churches these days. Not many opportunities for prayer 
we don't take them as much. The whole reason and purpose behind prayer is to recognize our need for Christ, to, to demonstrate that we are weak and we are reliant upon him. And so we ought to do that because we are his church that belongs to him. And so James says here, it's, it's clear that all believers have a privilege and responsibility to pray for healing. And then he says here, kind of as a summary, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or you may, if you grew up in the church, you may have heard it as uh, the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. So, the, or the effective fervent prayer, let's say, of a righteous person availeth much. So James gives us this summary here. And I love how he kind of describes it there as a righteous person. And what he's saying there is not that you're necessarily righteous in and of yourself, but rather he's just speaking of a believer who has placed their active trust and faith in Christ for salvation. If you claim that Jesus is your King, your Lord, your Savior, this is for you. You are a righteous person, and your prayers have great power as they work. And he's giving us this summary, and then in verse 17, he gives us an example. James loves examples, and I love examples. So he gives us an example in verse 17. He says, Elijah he gives us this great example of a prophet who throughout Israel's history was, was known as someone who would proclaim the word of the Lord and denounce sin, who, uh, who would kind of prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What? He says, this guy who did all these crazy things, all these miraculous things, he was the same as us, James is telling us. He was a man with the, with the same nature like ours. And he prayed fervently like it, that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So James tells us Elijah was just like us. He was an ordinary person. But Elijah's model of prayer was effective because he was faithful in his prayer to discover the will of the Lord. He saw Israel's unrepentant sin, and so he prays that the Lord would bring them back. He prays that the Lord would discipline them through the use of uh, holding back rain that they would need for their crops, that there would be this great drought, and the Lord responds. It shows that Elijah's heart was in tune with the Lord's heart. He was interested in doing what the Lord was doing, not in his own purposes, his own desires, he prayed for rain to stop, it tells us, and it stopped only because that was within God's heart to do that. He prayed for the rain to begin again, and the rain did that because that was God's will towards the people of Israel. And so he says that that's the type of power that you and I have in prayer. We're just like Elijah, but if we discover the Lord's heart in prayer, if we seek the Lord's will in prayer, we will have the same results as Elijah had. Then he goes on in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James is wrapping up the book now. Here's his last two verses that he's giving us. And he's kind of giving us a summary here. And after introducing this topic of the church ought to, to 
confess their sin to one another. We ought to get together and pray for one another and confess what's going on in our lives and deal with sin. James now reminds us of the need to deal with those who have wandered from the truth. And when he says, if anyone among you has, has wandered from the truth, he's not just speaking of like a very narrow set of doctrines here. He's speaking of if, you've, if you are wandering away from the gospel, it's a, there's more of a, a purposeful thought behind this. The truth of the gospel is something that has to be done as well as believed. You must have faith and works. You must be a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. And so you can't just know the truth. You have to do the truth. You can't just, you can't just be aware of the truth, but rather you have to act on it. And that's what James has been telling us throughout the whole book. He's interested in us being wholehearted. And so he's written to address every area of life of those who are wandering from the truth. If you're having difficulties and trials and you're wandering away in that area, boom, he's got you. If you're having difficulties with your tongue, boom, he's written to that. If you are showing favoritism and partiality, there it is. If you're trying to show your righteousness through your own works and not the works of Christ, boom, he's got that covered. He goes systematically through all areas of life and addresses everything. And now he ends it by saying, if anyone wanders from the truth... You know, they're wandering into judgment, essentially. When they wander away, they wander into, you know, they're really facing death. And he says, if someone brings them back, send someone to bring them back. We should be aware of those who were with us and we should demonstrate the love of God as Jesus left heaven and came to earth to bring us into a relationship with him. Likewise, we, the people of God, should go to those who are wandering away and grab them and bring them back into relationship. And so when we do that, James tells us, the result is that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering, that person saves his soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. We should take action to those who are wandering. We should be aware. And by doing so, a soul is saved and many sins are covered. And I love what he does there. When he says many sins are covered, he's quoting from Proverbs uh, 10, 10, 12. He says where, where hate stirs up strife and it's contrasted with love that covers offenses. And when he talks about that, that covering there, it's speaking of the forgiveness of the Lord. That he's saying that there's time. If, if someone goes to someone who's wandered from the truth, and you go and you bring that person back, if you, if you bring that person back into the fold and show them the truth and, and exhort them to walk with Jesus and be wholehearted with God, God still has forgiveness with them because love covers a multitude of sins. The forgiveness of the Lord is there. It, similarly, in Psalm 32, 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It's that same word that he's speaking of there. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's what James has been getting at. Wholeheartedness. In whom a man... there. You know, the Lord sees there's no iniquity in whose spirit there's no deceit. He's wholehearted. And so James is interested in us understanding that we should do what he's written and not simply be hearers. The, the readers of his letter should be concerned 
to also see that other people do them. You know, in, in our culture, we live in a very individualistic society where it's like, man, leave me alone. Let me just mind your own business. Let me deal with myself. But that's not the culture of Christ. He tells us to bear one another's burdens, to put, one, put others before ourselves, to lay down our lives for a brother. It's not every man for himself. It's every man for another. You're giving of yourself. And so James is concerned here that not only that we would hear this, but that we would also hold other people to it as well. That we wouldn't be like, dude, that's their own business. Let them do their own thing. Let them work it out on their own. James is saying, you go and deal with it. And you exhort them to righteousness. You bring them back into relationship. Remind them of the gospel. Show them the riches that they have in Christ. Remind them that love covers a multitude of sins and that there is forgiveness available for those who would have it. And so as we kind of wrap up the book, it causes us, at least uh, it's caused me as we've gone through it to inspect those different areas of my life and in seeing the areas that the Lord has been working on and trying to, you know, to deal with me on so that I can be more complete as I go through trials and endure, you know, temptation, as I let my tongue be used for his glory and not my own detriment. It's something that we want to strive for, to be wholehearted. And so as we wrap up, I pray, you know, it's my prayer for, for us that we would consider seriously where the, where the Lord's working in us in these things, how, how he ought to grab a hold of us and reveal the areas in our life in which we need growth. And, you know, as the Lord reveals those things to you, get with one another, confess your sins to one another, just like he tells us to do. Pray for one another, and we'll grow in the Lord together. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the book of James and that you've given it to us, Lord, just to address the real practical areas of life that we're really great at finding loopholes at and other, other portions of Scripture. You know, where, where we want to wonder out loud, well, did, did the Lord really mean this? And here in James, Lord, you tell us straightforward, in a straightforward manner, Lord, what you mean what you want, and, and how we can best honor you, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would cause our heart, Lord, as we look at, um, as we respond to your word, Lord, not to look at it from, a, from the, the angle and the, the aspect of what's the least amount of work that we can do here in order to, to be right and correct, but what is the Lord, we want our desire and our heart to, to be what is the, the best possible way that we can bring the most glory to you. And so work in us to change our heart, Lord. It's a difficult thing where we are human and selfish, Lord. We are sinful, but we are bought by the blood of Christ. We're redeemed Lord, and that you have put within us a new heart, Lord. And so we want to lay down our rights. We want to lay down our own desires. We want to make you our priority, Lord. And so cause us to develop and cultivate a serious prayer life, Lord, where we come to you in prayer, where we seek first your face, Lord. And as we do that, 
Um, Lord, may we see your faithfulness as we ask in your name. So, Lord, continue to work in us, we pray. We love you. Amen.